The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, welcome back. All the brave souls who are still here. <laughs> so here's what um, my goal is for this, for this session before lunch. Uh, we're going to look at jhana in detail. So that's a lot to do, but I think we can hit the highlights. And you'll have reference material, depending on how much you want to go into it. And then um, I'm hoping to just energetically slow it down a little bit. I, as I said earlier, I'm aware of keeping a certain pace because it's, it's just a lot. And when I was asked to do this class, which I'm happy to do, you know, I thought, oh, my gosh, how are we going to do this in one day to do it justice? So I'm aware it's a lot. But my intention is for us to uh, not sit now because I want to make sure we cover the material, but try to actually have some silent sitting even if it's 15 or 20 minutes before lunch, so we can get some of that to balance. So I will try to do that. Okay. All right. So I'd like to make a shift now. We're going to shift out of the Vasudhi Maga and go back into the suttas to talk about jhana. And then when we're done with that, we'll then look at what we've learned about John and the suttas, and it'll just be a little bit to fill in what, uh, very short on John and the Vasudhimaga, okay? So now we were in, you know, I, what did I say? We were in, Vasu, we were in Vasudhimaga land. <laughs> now we're back in sutta land. And again, when I say that, I am not actually uh, taking a side that uh, I'm perfectly happy if People want to say, well, the, the Sudimaga is explaining what's in the jhana. They're not two different lands. I'm just saying I'm setting aside the Vasudhimaga and just looking at what's in the suttas without paying attention to, to that. So if you would uh, pay attention, in your, if you would go in your notes to page... Um, sorry, just one moment. If you would go to page six in your notes. And there's a little short amount of reading, but um, I was going to ask, I guess the mic's around somewhere. Uh, There's the mic. Just because I guess it would be better just to have other voices come in because I'm doing so much, you know, of the talking here. Um, So we're going to talk about jhana in the Pali Suttas. And I wonder if someone would be willing to read just the first two quotes up there at the talk. Oh, yes, please. Let's get you a mic. Could you just pass that behind you, Cater? And just read those first two quotes attributed to the Buddha from the suttas. Thank you. Thank you. Jhana is called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that is, should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. The Buddha, Latukikomapa Sutta. Okay. 
just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too one who develops and cultivates the four jhana slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana, yeah. so, the Buddha. Okay. So, uh, and Nibbana, uh, you, you hear the term Nirvana is the Sanskrit, Nibbana is the Pali. So I just put those in here because, um, uh, you know, as we see, as we pepper a few different quotes here and there, it's pretty clear in the suttas that uh, the Buddha is emphasizing the importance of jhana a lot, uh, of samadhi a lot and of jhana a lot. They make a big deal about it, actually. Right? And that's just a different emphasis for, say, the, the, the Sudhimaga pure insight path that's consciously de-emphasizing it. So quite different, yeah? So then we have on page six, it says jhana definition. And here's what I want to say. This, this, uh, the, so jhana, the word jhana, it actually just means uh, uh, to meditate. or me- That's it. And in fact, meditate. Isn't that, I'm sorry, because jhana, that sounds weird, which is different. No, same thing. Th- that's the Sanskrit, jhana's the Pali. Tiana in Sanskrit. Oh, is a translation is of the san- Yes. As a matter of fact, it's more than that. I was going to say, so dhyana in Sanskrit, jhana in Pali. It means meditate. In the Chinese is chan, chan schools of Buddhism. Japanese, zen. Zen is actually jhana schools of Buddhism, right? So uh, it's a big world about what we mean by jhana. In the Pali, in the, in the suttas, there are a few places where it does mean just to meditate. And in fact, there's a few places where it actually refers to uh, some kinds of what are called wrong, I didn't put them in your notes here, but wrong, wrong meditation. And if you ever see these statues of the Buddha where he looks, it literally looks like his, the skeleton and you see the ribs, that was the Buddha depicting if you know the history of the story of the Buddha's life, uh, in his uh, six years of ascetic practices before his enlightenment, and he almost, you know, almost died, you know, starving himself and all this. And he said, he's quoted as saying he did a kind of meditation called the breathingless jhana, where he would hold his breath for, you know, if, I guess it was some kind of self-mortification or whatever he would do. And it was called a wrong, you know, not not helpful jhana. So there are a few places like that in the suttas, but not much. In almost all cases, it refers to what are called the four jhanas, the right samadhi, the four jhanas. And there is a definition given here, and I've got a translation here, uh, and this is, we want to talk about it because this is a particular translation. It could be translated in a few, you know, different ways. And by definition, every jhana is this. It's these words. That's jhana. Okay? Well, I've got four, because there's four jhanas here. Now, I want to say also that um, most of the quotes in here are other, uh, I've used by by permission from other translators, but this jhana definition is my translation, and I just want to say that because you may notice it's uh, 
uh, other, uh, uh, it may differ in a few things from some other translations. I don't want to get into comparing translations so much today, just for time. So I just wanted you to be aware it's my translation. Um, I, I'm not... Um, I'm not a Sanskrit or Pali scholar. I, I know enough to be dangerous, <laughs> and I, but um, I do know some. I have studied it for a few years, and I know a little. And um, some of these people made certain, like Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a, who's a great scholar and, of course, far more knowledgeable than me. He made cer- I've spoken with him about this. He's an example of someone who made particular translation choices, and he had his reasons for it. But I felt like they pulled the meaning in a, it was coming with an agenda, and, and I'm not criticizing him in any way. I have a great admirer of his, but with a particular meaning. And I was trying to get more towards my understanding of just a pure meaning without uh, an overlay of interpretation. That's why I did this, so that, for better or worse, okay? My, the, right, the four jhanas. Uh, it, my translation, when we get into the similes, it's not my translation, but just the jhana definition. So what, what I want to say, and then we'll ask someone to read, the, these are the, these, each of these sentences are one each of the four jhanas, and in about half the cases, this is the way it's presented in the suttas, these four. In about the other half of the cases, it's added, we're going to see in a little bit, there's some similes that are given using water imagery, which are quite beautiful. So they're in there about half the time. But this is the jhana definition without the similes here, yeah? So I wonder if when it says jhana definition, just to start off, just so we can hear it together, if someone would be willing to just read uh, the definition there. Yes, please. Could you take the mic? Thank you. Tell me when I need to stop. Quite secluded from sensual pleasure, secluded from unwholesome states, the monk enters and abides in the first jhana, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion and accompanied by thought and examination. So please pause there for a moment. Clear? No confusion? It's not clear, is it? Just one moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we need to explore this, don't we? Because now these are English translations, and we need to go through some of these terms and what the Pali really means. But I want to say ahead of time is part of the reason is that there's a wide range of what people teach and practice and experience as, as jhana. Is that by definition, any meditative experience you have that matches these definitions is legitimately called jhana. So it's the whole question is, how much can we know what the Buddha and the people of the Buddhist time actually meant and understood? And we may need to use some other suttas and data points to help inform that. But you can see some of these terms here might be, uh, there's a lot of different meditative states that might match to that. And uh, can you hold just for a moment? I don't want you to forget your point. I just want to read one quote that I think would be helpful. So this is... um, Again, and this is the book I was telling you. That's my book back there. And the first half of the book is really the material we're doing here, but in more detail. And the second half is interviews with eight well-known teachers. And it's, I thought they came out just really, really, I was so happy with it. And one of them, so, and we can see all their different understandings then, and, and it's really helpful. And um, 
Let me just read this one thing from, from Ajahn Tanisaro, and then, and then, is that okay, and then I can come to you? Okay, I just don't want you to forget your point. Um, I asked him, why, the, why, I, why do you think there's so much disagreement and controversy about samadhi? But I think it, it also, his answer uh, also informs just how to, how to hold this and understand it. He says, um, well, let me just read this one little piece. He says, one issue is that, is that given that we're talking about purely mental states, each person's sense of the map inside the mind is going to be different. When I use a term and you use a term, there's no guarantee that we're actually talking about the same thing. And I'm skipping here a little bit. When you talk about meditative experiences, who knows if we're standing on the same point? There are so many different points you can stand on and so many states that are radically, this is the point, radically different but fit the same verbal description. So that's an important point for us just to keep in mind here, okay? All right, so yes, please. Yeah, just a question on clarification. The word seclusion right. is used in the definition, and, and in this context, seclusion from what? Right, so we're going to go through all okay. of those points. Thanks. Yes. Do you mind continuing just to read? So just for complete, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to read this so you've heard it. Then we're actually going to pause on the first jhana and really go into some depth, and then we'll be able to more quickly go through the other three jhanas. Please continue. With the stealing of thought and examination, he enters and abides in the second jhana, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure, born of concentration and accompanied by inner composure and singleness of mind, without thought and examination. With the fading away of rapture, he abides in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, feeling pleasure with the body. He enters and abides in the third jhana, of which the noble one declare, equanimous and mindful, he abides in pleasure. With the abundance... With the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he enters and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and purity of mindfulness and equanimity. Okay, so thank you. That's the four jhanas. So now we have to understand what it means. Yes. How can we experience purity of mindfulness and equanimity without any feeling state? So we're going to go through this in detail. When you say feeling state, you mean pleasant, uh, Vedana, pleasant? Right, pleasant, you know. I mean, right. it seems to me that it would automatically be on the pleasant side, uh, maybe not in, in extent, intense, but... Right. You know, how, how can you experience that without... Right, so that's, that's great, and uh, let's, let's explore that, okay? And bring that back in if, again if we don't... About, these are the kind of things we're going to explore right now, okay? Yes, please. Um, regarding, the unwholesome, regarding the unwholesome states hmm, 
uh, if we lose lean, read unwholesome states as um, hindrances? R right, right, that's, yes. Yeah. Um, I have a list somewhere uh, that details which of the ten fetters fall away at which one of the jhanas, right? But we're not talking about fetters here. We're talking about hindrances. But there is also correlation between, uh, because some of the fetters, like ill will, are the same as hindrances or sensual. There is a correlation between some of the fetters and some of the... But we want to make a distinction between yeah. if ill will is arising in the mind in a particular moment, say we're in a particular meditative state, versus where it's been uprooted and it cannot arise regardless of whether in a meditative state Which or not. Which leads me to the essence of the question that I wanted to ask. Sorry, I went... Uh, it's fine, fine. Yeah. So, um, is the idea that we, uh, as we begin to experience a jhana, we may still have some risings that contain uh, one of the hindrances, but as we mature and perfect or whatever, achieve or get the f fruition of the jhana, we are done with it? Or is it a prerequisite that you have to drop, that you have to be completely free, say, of ill will or sensual desire in order to experience right, the right. first jhana? Which well, we're, let's do this. Um, I can answer that from the perspective of the texts, and I can answer it from the perspective of experiential. From perspective of experiential, and I don't want to get, go on too much, this is a huge topic, but I will say this. There is a, um, there's a list called the Four Imponderables. Uh, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya Book of Fours. And it's four things that the Buddha said, and, and, and I'm paraphrasing. Don't even, you can't figure it out. Don't try to figure it out. And if you do, it's just going to blow your mind. So don't even go there. And for example, how did existence even get started? What, how did, you know, that's kind of like my son gets into that all the time. Well, what, the, what led to the Big Bang? Well, it had to be something before that. How was that? And, but if it existed eternally, how can, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Just don't, don't do it. Although it, it is kind of fun, but it's not going to be profitable in the service of freeing your mind. Uh, the mind of a Buddha as one, the intricacies of the web of karma, if you, if you accept multiple lifetimes over innumerable whatever, it's just like, just don't try to figure out, you know, if like someone punches me in the arm, you can't say, oh, that's because you punched someone in the arm, no, no, it's just, and the fourth one, I don't remember the order, is the range of experiences possible in jhana. Jhana is, it's this funny world where You know, if, if for those of you, if once you start having these experiences, and then if you, if you either are, end up in the teaching world, and you work with a lot of different, you know, because of my book, I get a lot of people come to me and work with them. It's all over the place. It's not one way. And you can be in jhana, and it's all the wholesome, and the mind's unmoving, and it's all, everything we're getting ready to talk about, and this isn't in the text, but I'm telling you, and then it's like, boredom comes up and you want to go check CNN to see what happened uh, to our president or something like that and, and, and you're sitting there in John or something like I mean I'm telling you and then well what happened did you fall out of John or did, it's, it's just a big world so can I don't want to sit here and make a categorical statement 
for all people at all time that, that no difficulties can arise in jhana. But basically speaking, those things have been put aside. Yeah. And let's leave it at that for now, yeah. okay? No, okay. All right. So there's some things here in your in the text, uh, in your notes on page six that you can look at for yourself. Uh, but uh, in for the, uh, and for the top of page seven, I think it would be worth just a few sentences there uh, about some other things I put in from the suttas. There's a lot more material, of course, I could not include here. Again, the note, uh, well, no, never mind. Uh, I, could, I even have more detailed notes uh, uh, if you don't want to buy a book or whatever that I could share with you teaching notes here like 60 pages or something so uh, you can get a lot of information right we're going now in more detail <laughs> so let's do this let's look at the first jhana again on page seven with the simile and then we're going to go through some of these poly terms in detail okay And of everything we're going to do today, this is the point right now where we're really going to have to kind of bear into into it some. But we just have to do it to understand it, okay? So I wonder if someone would be willing uh, to read where it says, First John, a definition with simile. Okay, Cater, please, would you? um, Let's see. There's a, oh, thank you. Yeah. Quite, quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a monk enters and abides in the first jhana, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion and accompanied by thought and examination. He makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and, sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it till the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it, and pervades it inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze so too, a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Okay, so thank you. Yeah. So that's a lot. So here's what we want to do. Uh, uh, we're, in just a moment, we're going to go through that first Definition and there's uh, five terms here. Um, there's what we call rapture and pleasure, which it says are born of seclusion. So we want to look at the poly and there's a range of meanings. And there's what do we mean by thought and examination there? That's a that's kind of a big term. So we want to look at those in detail. But first, let me see, just make sure. So you get that. So as you'll see as we go through the jhanas and look at the similes. Um, there's water imagery here, right? He's used water, and, um, and, and you'll, I, I, the similes, I think, are quite beautiful as we go through, and they actually really do give a very good, accurate sense of the way into the jhana and what the experience in the jhana is, and you'll see that. But do you get what's going on here, right? The person's making soap. He's taking bath powder, 
mixing in water and kneading it till it's just become one, it's thoroughly mixed. It's like if you had dough or something and you mix the flour and the water, you don't have separated out flour. It's all become one thing. And so um, there's a few things in the simile. First, of course, there's a certain amount of effort that's in there. You know, I picture somebody, he or she have built their muscles up making the soap and it's a lot of effort. So there's a certain amount of effort here that, that, that drops away in the other jhanas. So there's that feeling. But um, also we've taken some kind of qualities, which it says here, again, this rapture and pleasure, and it's been suffused through your body. Okay? So let's go back and look at what some of these terms are. Um, I, had, I, we, I didn't say, but it's in your notes. If you go back to the bottom of page six in your notes, it talks about five elements from the jhana definition that are called jhana factors. As far as I'm aware, if I recall correctly, there's only one sutta here that calls these five jhana factors. So now, because of that, everybody's got this thing about the jhana factors. I tend to de-emphasize that way of thinking of it personally, but that's my own style. But let's look at these. So um, first, let's look at this definition. It says, quite secluded from sensual pleasure. So we're starting off. What does it mean? It's basically, it's really just simple. It's saying if we want our minds to settle in anything, like you're meditating, forget about jhana even, isn't it true that it's very conducive, probably for almost all of us, that we, we need to, to set up supporting environment to help us, right? So if the central pleasures are raging and we're engaged in the world, we have to, it's hard for the mind to settle. So if you've ever, any of you have ever either meditate in daily life, what most people do is they find, you do the best you can, you may not have a little meditation room, or but maybe you just go sit somewhere, if you're fortunate enough to get some kind of quiet, the best you can, so you've kind of set up a little seclusion in a sense there. Or if you go on a retreat, if any of you have ever done those, you've actually stepped out of ordinary life. <laughs> you may not be secluded from your mind. That's different. That's what we're working on. But certainly externally, we, we simplify down to support the mind to settle down. That's really, we could say a lot more, but that's basically what we're talking about here. It's simple. And then secluded from unwholesome states. This gets into what you were talking about here, right? Unwholesome states, we can think of it as the five hindrances. And if you don't know the whole list, but it's states of, you know, of, of, of greed or chasing after, after pleasure, ill will or hatred or aversion or anything about uh, unpleasant. And there's what's called skeptical doubt. There's uh, restlessness. Um, there's sloth and torpor where energy's too low. There's a, there's a range of these things called the hindrances. And again, you can go on your own and just look up the list of the five hindrances. Uh, I think I've got them in one of the books there. You could look it up and see if you want. I didn't list them here. And these are mind states, and we call them hindrances, right, because they tend to get us caught up and be... They do feel like obstacles or hindrances to us. So we need to set them aside temporarily enough just to help the mind be able to settle. That's all we're talking about. I think we secluded with, or secluded from with letting go 
Uh, well, that would be fine. I'm, I'm good with that. That's, I don't think that's the translation here, but I think that's is great. Because then we're not bothered if we can let go of something. And so one way to think of it is, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? I'm actually really happy you brought that up. How much do we need to like take noise from outside? I, I haven't been noticing much noise, but uh, say there's traffic noise. One level is, how much do I need it to be actually quiet in here for my mind to settle? How much the letting go? How much do I just not need to be bothered by it for my mind to settle? So there's a balance there, and we have to see wherever we're at in our development what supports us the best. Yeah. Yes, Steve. Phrase and right mindfulness, which I've found most mindfulness teachers don't emphasize enough, which is sad. But it, it says putting it, Kiki Bodhi's translation, putting aside greed and covetousness for the world, right. or uh, Jeff's translation, greed and distress for the world. Greed and distress for yeah. The, world. the thing is, when you're taking, establishing mindfulness, and mindfulness in the body, feelings, whatever. <laughs> You put aside everything connected to the world with that, just concentrating on that. And that, Ajahn Jeff says in his teachings, that will naturally lead jhana because you, you are secluded from sense. Yeah, yeah. The one leads right into the other. Great. Thank you. That's great. Wonderful. Yeah. So it, basically, these are all bringing in the, what skillful means can we set up to help us be conducive to settling in? Okay, that's, we'll just leave it at that for now, okay? And all these different ways, I think, are, sound really great. And then, it doesn't really tell you any more about how to enter and abide in the first jhana. The Vasudhimaga goes into great detail, right? It has 40 meditation subjects. So it goes in a lot of detail. And there's a lot of different meditation practices elsewhere in the suttas. But actually in the jhana definition, it just says, it doesn't actually tell you, oh, it does it with the, it gives you a little clue in the, in the um, simile. So we'll come back to that. But it's just saying we go into the first jhana and then in brackets, I just put in the term, which is characterized by, that's just my addition. Uh, there's these four things. There's this rapture and pleasure and thought and examination, my translations. Let's look at those. Okay. The first two, uh, so I've got them in different orders here. First, I'm going to look at what I translated as thought and examination. Okay? In the Pali, at the bottom of page 7 there, there are two factors of lifts called vitaka vichara. By the way, if, if uh, uh, this is kind of in, what's called international standard poly, there's also like the Burmese, do it with a Burmese accent, they will do the V's with a W, it would be more of a vitaka vichara, so if you hear that, it's still poly, it's just a, a Burmese accent, if you will. Yeah? So different ways it's pronounced, not one right or wrong. And what I did here on the bottom of page 7 is I listed out, I went and looked up every place I could find the different translations that were there. And here's what I came up. So there are two terms. And I'll just read them here. Uh, v- together, Vitaka Vichar are variously translated as reflection and investigation, thinking and pondering, thought and examination, applied and sustained thought, 
thought conception and discursive thinking, connecting and sustaining, initial and sustained mental application, and directed thought and evaluation. There might be more translations out there, right? So it's a range of understandings. Um, First, let me say this, that um, I spoke with Peter Skilling about this when I was working on my book. He's a, uh, he used to be the president of the Polytech Society. I don't know if he's still, but he lived in Thailand for many years, and he's kind of one of these world-renowned poly-Sanskrit scholars. And he's a practitioner also. And he said that um, of all the terms that we're going to deal with, these two are the least understood about what the real meaning was there. It's not clear. That's what Peter Skilling told me. And so it's open to a range of interpretations here, right? Yeah, Vitaka Vichara. That's what he said. So um, we just want to know that. Also, if you look in the suttas, Vitaka and Vichara almost always appear as a pair there's a few times where, they're separ- where Vichara is separated out, but that's not really of interest here. It's almost always, and Peter Skilling said they should be taken as a pair. Is the, that's his take. Yeah, so let's look. When you look at these two, the way I would separate them out is, um, uh, as a matter of fact, I say this on the top of page eight of their notes. I'll just read here. If you, you can take all those definitions I came up with and you can group them into roughly into two kinds of connotations, if you will, or two meanings. One of them indicates mental activities where if you like thinking, reflecting, pondering, that's more of like a mental activity. And the other way to think of it is the mental activity in particular of connecting and sustaining your attention on a meditation object. Right? So... We're, uh, later, when we look at the at the at the Vasudhimaga, jumping ahead a little, it's clear in the Vasudhimaga, Vitaka Vichara means directing and then sustaining your attention on the meditation object. It's that mental function. But there are other meanings here that that people do translate and understand here, like this thinking and thought and examination and everything like that. So the reason that I uh, translated in my translation there, I use thought and examination. I'm not taking any side. I'm simply tried to use the translation that was the purest to the actual, sort of you took the etymology of the word according to my help with Peter Skilling and, and got... Um, just as close to the pure translation, the best I could come up with was thought and examination. But so that's why I used that. But you, in your meditation practice, could go both ways: connecting and sustaining your attention, or some other. And we're going to come back to this a bit. Some other mental processes that could be going on while you're in jhana. Some reflections that can happen, and in fact. When you're in jhana, we talk about getting this place of the, the, the mind not moving, we were saying. That's the, the, one of the factors we'll see in a moment, the one-pointedness or the unification. But even when that's happening, there can be another little part of the mind that can kind of, it may not be verbal, but can kind of look and turn and go, well, what's this and what's going on and let me look at this and can kind of investigate a little bit. It's subtle. So there can, depending on your definition and experience of jhana, there can be other mental stuff going on. So... 
we have to kind of be a little open in how we hold Vitaka Vichara of all the others will be more clear, but these two are it can go all over the place. Just one moment, I think his he was up first and then you yeah. So these translations that um, um, these words are emphasize the idea of thought or discursive thinking. Um, uh, seem seem uh, harmful as far as attaining uh, a concentrated state is concerned. Because boy, when I sit down and meditate, my tendency is discursive thinking, <laughs> and, right. and so I'm, I'm not getting concentrated at all. And thinking just encourages more thinking. And so yeah, forth. yeah, right. So that's important. So, but le- if any of you have ever had an experience, I'll just try to make a distinction to try to make the point. Yeah, it seems it must be meaning something different. Well, if I, I say, what if I use the language and I say, I sit to meditate, and I find that I am thinking. That has a certain feeling. What if I use more passive voice and say, I sit to meditate and I notice thoughts arising and passing away. That's a different way than being caught and lost in the thinking and just noticing from a more stable place that thoughts arising, just like I can notice body sensations arising and passing away, that it's just an impersonal process happening. But I may be very present and and concentrated. So a one-word noting practice, thinking... Uh, can, it seems helpful. Yeah, yeah. But discursive thinking. Uh, 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 well, well, I would. So that's just using a labeling technique as a method in meditation that could be very helpful, right? But when we get so, this is an interesting point. When we start thinking about, you'll see in the next jhanas that vitaka and vichara, in whatever way you understand, are going to drop away. When we get further in the jhanas, they're going to drop away. At, but the second jhana. So wh- whether we think of it, so there's a controversy. Does jhana have thoughts arising or not? And then what's the nature of that? Or is there some skillful me- use to help us deepen of using sort of the investigative part of the mind, right? So it's a big, this is, the, beca- it's a controversial area. And, um, but so you're right. So if we're lost, but at the very least, if we're lost in thinking and it's too stirred up, that's not conducive. Could there be a skillful use of it in there is, a diff- is different. So the, in- the investigation part of all this, could that mean, oh, I'm thinking. What am right. I thinking yeah, yeah. about? And, yes. and, and what emotions are driving this thought? What kind of uh, yeah. uh, unhappiness is driving it? And then you yeah. let go. Just a minute. We got one and then, t- and then to you, Steve. And, and, and well, so that so might you, be. So you I would see it and then let go? Well, I would say for jhana, it's subtler than that because then you're more on the insight side of things. Let me investigate what's driving emotions coming up. I wouldn't take it to that level. That's more like what you call an insight practice, right? But um, there can be just, I don't know if the texts are saying that, but practically speaking, it's subtle. There's not much movement happening, but you don't need much because the mind's so subtle. But that there could be some of that going on. But anyway, I'm going to come to you, okay? So don't forget your thing. Kind of a, a light turning over, and then you let go of it. And also, like, I've had experiences. I remember the first time I ever got into jhana, ever. It was in what I would later learn was first jhana. I could actually see, perceive, I'm not the right word, thoughts. The, the, the energy of a thought arising before it had even broken into consciousness. This might sound weird, I don't know. And then watch it break into consciousness and the thought. Now it was operating on a whole other level. 
underneath that was a one-pointedness of mind. When you get into second jhana, that drops away. So this is a big, big topic of the range of thoughts and everything. So okay for now? It's, this is helpful. Thank okay. You. And let me just say, and then we'll come to you, yours, and then, okay, I just take in the order that people say, and so I hope, okay, hope that's okay. I skipped over this for time, but let me just go back to... Um, Oh, yeah, right up at the top of page uh, 7, just before where it says the first jhana, there's a sutta called Anapada Sutta. And in addition to the jhan, five jhana factors, it lists 11 other qualities that are present in each jhana. We're not going to get into the Pali, and I don't want to overly think this, like what's this and what's that, just for time. Listen, sense contact, feeling, perception, volition, mind, intention, determination, energy, mindfulness, equanimity, attention. That's a lot of stuff that that sutta says is in jhanas. So, you know, we, it's a whole lifetime of inquiry and study, like what might be in jhana, what not. So we have to see for ourselves how it unfolds. Okay to leave it at that for now? Yes, please. I'm sorry I'm kind of rushing us along. Yeah. I just have a quick question to clarify. Uh, it was at the top of page eight when you said that there are two distinct meanings. Yeah. Um, are you saying that um, the thought would be the thinking and reflection and the examination would be the connecting and sustaining attention? You can categor- lump them. All I, I'm not saying that. What I'm okay. saying is, is that we know that the terms vataka-vachara are problematic terms to really get to the meaning. Now, plenty of teachers are going to say, no, 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 this is the meaning. But for every teacher who says that, I can find someone else who will say, no, 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 and will give you the opposite meaning. It's, it's a problematic to get to the original intended meaning. And that is part of the reason why there's a wide range of what people can legitimately claim to be jhanas. Because we just kind of have to leave it as we don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I just love this um, definition that you added because it makes me think that actually thought is different than examination. Like, I really connect to the examination being that um, connecting and sustained attention. Yeah. Like, to me, that means examination of yeah. something. Okay, I, good, <laughs> great. It, it should be coming obvious. I think the whole... Chana wars, the different opinions of Vasudhimaga, all boils down to the Vataka Vachar and how you interpret it. If you have directed, sustained thought, it's more like a willpower thing of keeping continuous. I want to say, with the directed thought and examination, which is how Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it, um, Ajahn Jeff translated it as um, directed thought and evaluation. Um, but in that school, the Ajahn Lee school, which is breath meditation to get into jhana, you use directed thought and examination. The examination is you, you look at how are you relating to the breath, how are you perceiving the breath, Can, how do I make the breath more comfortable, and you're actually examining it. And you have to be careful you don't get into discursive thinking. Thinking about keep, it. Yeah, but you keep your mind looking at it as a problem. How do I get closer to the breath? How do I get the breath more comfortable? That's using the vitaka vichar in that right. way. Right, in that way. And that, is different than the sustained and directed thought. So it, why you experience a jhana would be different is because how you interpret these, these yeah. words. No, that's but right. But what I wanted to point out for Bill is you can get into examination 
in a very skillful way. It's not just discursively thinking about you know, right. what you did today, but examining how am I relating to the breath? How does it feel? Where's the energy? Where am I intense? Where can I loosen up the body? Where can I loosen up the breath? Can I change my perception of the right. breath to make it more comfortable, to get my concentration deeper? And you explore these things and you learn how the mind works. Right. You're developing wisdom and mindfulness and you're developing yeah, yeah. your concentration. Yeah, so that's important. Thank you. So that would be the example of more the, ex- not discursive thinking, which is one of the translations, but more the, the examination like that you were talking about. And yeah. So one, yes, and what, what Steve says makes sense to me because, after all, uh, in, in following the breath meditation, our focus of attention is the breath. So wouldn't it naturally follow that what we're examining is characteristics of yeah, breath? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. No, to, 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 to churn up the pot, I've had discussions with Lee Brasington, who's a jhana teacher, and he just thinks of Vitakavacharas as background thoughts going on in the mind. Right. So they're all different. One, you're using things skillfully. You're taking that thought using skillfully. Another way you look at another. So it's, it's going to wonder why everybody has different experiences right. of jhana. That's right. So it's, yeah. It seems, it seems to me that this is splitting of hairs. Maybe that's what scholars like to do. But it's just thinking. And we think, and the brain thinks. Right. It seems to me to allow this within the first jhana is a very compassionate thing because the brain thinks, and I don't know about you, but when I'm sitting, sometimes there are discursive thoughts or examining thoughts or awareness yeah, yeah. thoughts. I'm not unconscious. That's right. And so this is more where I come down in that I think all of it's just my take on it is that all of these different understandings is just an acknowledgement of either different skillful means, like you were talking with Ajahn Tanisra as a certain skillful means, or different understandings. And the important thing is to look and see how is it for each of us, and then how do we work with it the best. And it can be a range. Uh, it's not just one way. And uh, so, yeah. But, you know, we are just kind of hovering here. We're right in the one point that's the... We're going to go to the next two, uh, PT and Sukh, in just a moment, and we'll get a little more clarity. But this Vitakavichar is the stickiest... Thorniest, and so it's a study day, so we have to hang here just a little bit. Yes, please. I was going to say that from a samatha point of view, it is less about thought, it's about the attention applied to the breath, right. which creates that unification and self appointedness. So it isn't really about thought at all. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's actually is the Vasudhi Maga is actually very clear that that's what they mean by this term. So th- they've made it clear. When, we, when we're talking, this is what we mean. Right, exactly. Richard? Yeah. Are you going to talk about the four bases of power? No. At all during that? Because that's, people understand that if you really want to develop concentration, it requires a lot of effort and desire and wanting to do it. Yeah, I wasn't planning to do that. We may see if we have time. So we'll have some time maybe to bring some stuff like that in. But, but, if, you know, if you're staying, you're just going to, see that the mind thinks, you'll never get into contrary. You have to have a real desire to really keep with whatever your object of meditation is. Right. So it's true. It's, it, we're not spending a lot of time on the how to do it here today. Um, maybe you'll help me sell more books because I got one out there that tells you everything you need to know. <laughs> All right. Good book. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
I've heard they were both really good, but you know. <laughs> there's a how-to practice book, which is the art and skill book. I'm just joking. It's a number of, there's a few books out there around meditation in particular that bring the samadhi piece in, and I could give you a list of some of them if you want, and that's just one of a four or five of them that are out there about that. Okay, so we've got something going on here, um, some kind of mental process, and I think there's, they kind of, it, to me, they sort of both come together. There is some kind of directing of, atten- there's an intentionality there when you're practicing. That's the directing and sustaining. And there's other mental evaluation, and there's just the thinking. All these things are going in different combinations. And then how we emphasize them, that's the whole thing. So that's this Vitakan Char. And it says here, when mental, in the first jhana, when you're even in there, whatever the heck it is, that jhana is accompanied by Vitakan Char. They're qualities when you're in the state. Yeah? Now, let's go, though, but it also says, um, uh, characterized by this rapture and pleasure that are born of seclusion, and that's these, up at the top of page H, called Piti and Sukha. Now, um, here, I'll just tell you, if you look at, I just looked up a bunch of definitions, and these are different ones I found. There could be some others. Piti, rapture, bliss, joy, delight, zest, exuberance. Sukha, pleasure, happiness, joy, agreeable bliss. There's actually a little bit of uh, like the bliss is sort of, a, uh, of, of, of an overlap between these, right? So um, this is a little problematic because what I want to say is, as we'll see in the Vasudhi Maga, it's very clear they define what we mean by piti. The suttas don't do that. They don't say. They don't really tell you what it is. And I'm going to tell you, this is just me. This is not suttas or Vasudhimaga. It's highly individual. It's not one way. And for some, what happens is you start getting concentrated. It can be very pleasant. And that pleasantness can manifest in a range of ways. Energies can be moving in the body. Actually, the energies can be, can be kind of unpleasant, the PT, because it can get to be too much or too raggedy or can kind of overpower us a little bit, not to scare you or anything. It can all be worked with. So it's not always pleasant, but it's like there can be strong energies that move, and they feel more embodied. Sometimes it doesn't feel so embodied. It feels more uh, mental in the realm of the mind. It's not clear. Sometimes we see light that can be very blissful and all kinds of manifestations. I don't want to go off on too much, but it can, it's, it's a pleasantness here, right? So um, it's saying that these manifestations are present and um, there's different understandings here. There is the understanding of some people that the PT is is more of a blissful and is stronger and when the and there's this other separate thing called sukha which is more of a happiness or pleasure that's a little not as strong i don't view it that way this is just my own take i get to pepper in my own take a little bit here and there i view it as just a continuum it's not like there's this thing here pt and there's this thing here sukha but it's just what the manifestation looks like as things settle out right the way I use it is, and we'll see in the definition, that when I'm talking about sukha in the body, I use pleasure. And when I'm talking about it mental, I use the translation happiness to distinguish between a mental and a physical. 
But I think one thing just to keep in mind, and we can, I don't know how much time we need to take on this, but it's basically saying here, going back to the simile, that this piti and sukkah, this bliss, rapture, pleasant feelings, are being suffused through your body. The bath man, like kneading it and suffusing it through the body. Both as a way to enter jhana, sort of bring it through if it doesn't on its own through your body as it strengthens, or also a a, a characteristic of when you're in jhana. It's a state in which these are suffused. And the only thing that's tricky is that because people experience it on such a wide range, it's not the same for everyone. So some people have very strong PT. And for other people, it's very smoothed out, even from the beginning. You could still look and say, okay, I'll call that the PT. But, and the equanimity actually comes more to the prominence in your mind, even, even early on. So it's, it's not one way. And again, the suttas don't really help us on what they really meant there. So all of it's, it's all good. Right? There's a whole other piece we could get in into how you work with it. So, for example, if you went with a teacher like, say, Lizzie Brasington, one of the ways he tends to, his name's coming up a lot, the way he tends to teach is you start to be with whatever your breath, the pleasantness comes up, and pretty early on you shift your attention right onto the PT itself as your meditation object and let that pleasantness pull you in deeper. That really does work for some people. And for other people, it's counterproductive. You shouldn't put your attention on the PT. You should just stay with your breath. Let the PT be there. And, and other teachers will emphasize. They say, no, don't put your attention on the PT. Stay with the breath more and everything. But it's highly individual. It's not one way. And it, but the, certainly the simile is saying we're taking this some kind of blissful, rapturous, pleasant feelings, and we're consciously suffusing it through the body if it doesn't happen on its own. Yes, please. Um, sometimes when I get really concentrated, I have these waves of energy coming. PT. That's called PT. That's your manifestation. Do you f- it's, not, it's not pleasurable. It's unsettling. Right. So then what we want to do is, right, so PT can be too much. It can be kind of raggedy or uh, too much or unsettling. And so um, in that case, we would want to, maybe you have people that you can work with. If not, offline, talk to me. I can talk to you about it. But then we'll want to have ways to smooth it. It can be worked with. Smooth it out. Make sure it's not too overpowering. And also make sure the quality of it is, is more pleasurable and smoothed out. So it, it can be worked with. Uh, but you want to kind of learn how to smooth it. So it, it, that happens for many people. So that's interesting, isn't it? It's not always, uh, PT's not always pleasurable. Yeah. And it actually can be overwhelming for somebody. It can feel like, you know, God, I plugged into the wall socket and my hand touched the metal and I'm getting like too much electricity or something. It can kind of be like that. So we want to work with it then. It's, no, it's not a problem, but we just want to know, oh, that's what's happening. Yes, please. I'm sensing a sort of paradox here. It feels like progressing from the first to the second to the third to the fourth jhana is a kind of emptying. It is. Um, progressively. But then there's this, the metaphors seem to be increasingly getting fuller and filling the body, filling the body. So are you kind of filling the body with greater states of emptiness? Uh, with, it's, it's a subtler, it's, it's, it's just subtler. Let's, we're going to look at it right now, but uh, keep that in mind and see what we see, because it just gets subtler. But it really is more of a dropping away 
as the mind settles more than, more than adding more. And how do you suffuse the body with something that has been progressively dropping away? Right. So everything gets... So first of all, the suffusing can happen on its own, or we can incline the mind to bring a little intentionality to do the suffusing. And you'll see the feeling of the assimilies actually shifts from the bath man really doing it to more it is happening and not doing. So it shifts, but we have to look for ourselves. But what I would say is this. You're exactly right. It gets subtler and subtler, but you're in such a subtle place that, that you're really connected with subtler experiences. So you don't need much to still be able to work with. And you wouldn't even want what you had in the first jhana that was maybe what you were attaining and striving for. Later on, it feels too much and gross and you want to settle it and it gets thinner and thinner. But that's all you need to work with. The last of the five, which is not, uh, which is going to show up later but not in the first jhana definition is the term chittasekagata. The chitta is the mind and the ekagata is, the eka is one. Translated as one-pointedness, singleness, and unification of mind. Again, if you use the translation of one-pointedness, that has more of a Vasudhimaga feel. If you use more of a unification of mind, um, the same term, but it's just, it's just the connotation you bring to it. So that gets into what our experience and understanding of, of the jhana is, right? Gets back to the two kinds of uh, samadhi I was talking about. So we got this thing, first jhana. Well, look what happens in the second jhana. Maybe I'll just read it for, for, just, just for time here. It says, with the stilling of thought and examination, however we understood Vitaka and Vichara, they've still, they've dropped away now in the second jhana. Right? You enter and abide in the second jhana, and it still has the piti and the sukha. But this time, instead of born from seclusion, it's born from concentration. Born out of the concentration of the first jhana. And it also adds things. The inner composure and the singleness of mind get emphasized. And then it also says without thought and examination. So that's the second jhana. If Taka and Vichara have fallen away, you still have piti and sukha. Because you're even more settled... The inner composure, that's my translation here, and um, singleness of mind, uh, uh, that's the akagata, have come to the foreground. And then again, it's just re-emphasizing you don't have vitaka vichara. Does well, we're not talking about a... Con- so this is an interesting place here. Uh, <sighs> So at this point, uh, again, it's, it's not what, we're getting more into the practice side of things. It's not just one way. But what I would say is, what I'm about to say is, it's going to open up a can of worms here because uh, it's, it's a big topic. But what generally happens is, is that, say, the breath or whatever we've been using, it's done its job. It's, we're way beyond. So my practice, for my whole practice, has been mindfulness of breathing. Whatever you've all done is your own practice. It transcends the, the technique. It's past that. Um, you're just in these jhana states more, and, and we're working on a different level. So it's not about the breath anymore. However, 
if we have a jhana that's connected in with the body, well, the body's still breathing. So then you could have experiences where there could still be experiences of breath, but it gets into the thing, what's our experience of the body? Because the whole experience of the body starts to shift, and it gets very thin and light. Maybe experience it as a body of, an ener- of energy or whatever. So it's a whole complexity of how we experience the body and what is the experience of the breath in that. So it's kind of a big topic. That's, yeah, that's more practice-oriented, which maybe is, of course, that is the most important. How do we practice with all of these? We can hang out here if you want a bit. I'm more going through the texts, right, and doing the study part. A <laughs> couple of things. Um, uh, let me see here. Um, so the inner composure is a new element. Uh, I don't want to go off into that too much. If you want offline, we can look at the translations. But I wonder if someone would... So basically, things are settling. So the question is, how do you settle from the first to the second John? It doesn't tell us here. But I want to offer, just to, uh, from a practice point of view, I would say there are two ways. You either do something, which I'll say in a moment, or you don't do anything and it happens on its own. So you have to see how it is for you. And if you are doing something, there's two flavors. There's the feeling of the letting go of the coarser factors to drop in, or there can be the inclining towards where you're aiming to drop in too. And those have different feelings. You know what I'm saying? If we want to drop away the Vitaka Vichara, there can be a feeling of a letting go into, letting go of something. But there can also be an inclining towards the deeper states. And there's just a different thing. So that's, I'll just leave it at that for now. But those are two variations on the doing. And for some people, it just happens. It's just you just going for the ride and it's taking you. It's not the same for everyone. That's why there's, when you read these different books on how to practice, you don't want to just read one person. You'd like to read a range because teachers will give different takes. And then you can find what works for you the best. Right? So second jhana, but if someone would read at the bottom of page 8, and it does spill over into the top of page 9, um, the simile at the bottom of page 8, would someone care to read that? I can read it, but, y- you know, if you want me to keep going. Okay, thank you. The meditator attains the second jhana and again pervades the body, this time with rapture and pleasure born of concentration. He makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade his, this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, just as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from the east, west, north, or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain. Then the cool fount of water welling up in a lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake, so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So, too, a bhikkhu makes the rapture and pleasure born of concentration drench, steep, fill, and pervade this body, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Yeah. Different feeling than the first simile, huh? So, b- by the way, the, the, the translations, there are some places, some 
so to some poly that says uh, there would be, uh, wait a minute, um, would not be replenished from time to time from showers of rain. You know, in other words, you've got a lake and it's only being replenished by something welling up from deep below. But there's other renditions where it says are replenished from time to time. So it's maybe there was some, over the centuries, they got some transcription errors there. So you hear it both ways. But you get the feeling of this. It's less energetic. It still says makes the, the piti and sukha suffuse through your body. But it's really... The whole sense of it's the coolness of the water and it's welling up from some deep place. It's not this external force. It's really coming deep from within and suffusing you. So you're already kind of suffused and it just something is just taking you in a much deeper access to something very deep and a more of a still feeling with the vitaka and vichara dropping away. The mind has come to just a greater stillness and then it, it emphasizes that by saying, right, I'm just repeating here, by saying inner composure and the singleness of mind have come to the fore. So that they, it's like the Vitaka and Vichar have settled and so those can really come into your awareness more prominently. Right? Of allowing, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But more of a sense of allowing than doing. I appreciate you saying that. And actually, Ajahn uh, Brahmavamsa, who's sometimes called Ajahn Brahm, his book is called Mindfulness, Bliss, and Beyond. That's his uh, jhana book. He's also got a, uh, uh, a great book title called uh, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? You know, you don't even need to read the book. You just really get the teaching there, what he's talking about. So, and he's quite a, he's in Australia, uh, Ajahn Brahm and worth reading and definitely deeply practiced. He's, he's interviewed in this book here. And he emphasizes that deeper stages of samadhi are not stages of doing, they're stages of letting go. But it's true we may need to do a little inclining, bring some intentionality, but it gets subtler and subtler, right? And we, or we may just be totally letting go and let it take us. So we have to kind of feel our way through. And he uses this wonderful image, he says, he says, imagine, he, he says he often holds up a glass of water and shows people that no matter how much he tries, he can never get it perfectly still. But if he just sets the glass of water down and lets go of it, it go, comes to stillness. And I love that image because what happens is once the samadhi gets to a certain point, and this is very important, whether it's John or whatever, the amount of doing that we do in the practice has to let go and we let the momentum of the samadhi take us. So it's more of a ratcheting back our efforting and letting the momentum take a bigger and bigger percentage until eventually it takes us. And that's the letting go into. But until it has enough momentum to take us, we still bring a little intentionality there. So we have, that's, that's part of, I think, the, the evaluation too. I don't know if Tanjeff talks exactly, but what's the balance on, on uh, doing versus letting go? And, and getting, because we're overdoing, we're actually preventing ourselves from letting go into. So that's second jhana. And now we're going to do it pretty fast. Third jhana, page nine. Maybe I'll just read it to, to crank through a little quickly. Now with the fading of rapture, that's the piti has dropped away, so the sukha's still there. With the fading of rapture, 
So things are getting subtler. You abide in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, feeling pleasure with the body. That's the sukha. You enter and abide in the third jhana of which the noble ones declare, equanimous and mindful, he abides in pleasure. So Vitak and Vitar had dropped away in the first jhana. Now but going from second to the third, I mean in the second jhana, now going to the third, the PT, however we experience it, dropped away. So the sukha, whether you sort of subscribe to what I say, that it's just a continuum of the same kind of thing as they're not separate from PT or you think they're separate in either way, PT's dropped away. It's subtler, it's smoother. And it brings the equanimity is coming to the fore now, right? Because things are, uh, it's not about that, you know, people in the early jhanas can, you, you can come and talk a lot about their PT and they want to report about their PT and how their PT's doing. Uh, certain teachers influence, I always can tell which teacher someone studied with because certain teachers, that's their style, you know. Uh, but all that becomes less interesting and it feels a little too coarse and too much. And as you settle down, just the pure equanimity and the clear mind is getting the emphasis here, right? So the equanimity and the mindful and clearly aware, those two terms which, which also are found in the uh, uh, Satipatthana Sutta uh, come, come to the fore, yeah? And I wonder if someone would just read that, uh, uh, the simile for the third jhana there. Anybody care to? Yes, please. Upon entering the third jhana, the simile continues thus. He makes the pleasure divested of rapture drench, steep, fill, and pervade his body, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pleasure divested of rapture. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive, immersed in the water, without rising out of it, and cool water drenches, steeps, fills and pervades them to their tips and to their roots so that, so that there is no part of all those lotuses unpervaded by cool water. So too, a bhikkhu makes the pleasure divested of rapture, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body <coughs> unpervaded by the pleasure divested of rapture. Yeah. So you get the feeling here, right? These lotuses... I don't know how lotuses actually work, but in the image here, there's no doing. They're born, they live, and they die. They just are suffused in this water, completely immersed. So it's just more a state of being rather than doing, right? If there is any doing, it certainly would be pretty subtle here, right? Well, so... um, um, you, you, it says here, the pleasure divested of rapture, that's the sukha without the piti, is what it's talking about here. So still this, whatever we experience sukha as, happiness, pleasure, but it's thin and subtle, you know, that's what's suffused through your whole body, right? Well, it's not using the terms awareness, so this is an interesting thing. I mean, d- that term awareness is not here, although it does say mindful and clearly aware. So this goes back to someone who said earlier, you know, if you've gotten into some one-pointedness, we're not talking about that here, that could you get into sort of a deluded state or, or could it be kind of a thing? So that would be kind of you've, you've, your aware, awareness has been dull or there's not an awareness here, but see, that's clearly not what it's talking about here. It wants us to have a very 
clear awareness. And actually, we're going to look in the fourth jhana in just a moment here. Um, um, we're going to go to lunch pretty quick, but so just a few more minutes. You will see how much the actual awareness comes, itself comes to the fore, right? Okay, so things are getting subtler. And now we'll just look at the fourth jhana. Um, here it is on page nine. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, you enter and abide in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness and equanimity. By the way, there's two kinds of equanimity. There's an equanimity in which there is no pleasure or pain present. And there's also an equanimity where the mind is undisturbed by if there's pleasure or pain. There's different kinds of equanimity. What is it saying here? Uh, Piti and Sukha have both dropped away. So I take the pleasure and pain to be uh, body and joy and grief to be mental. Different physical body and mental pleasant and unpleasant experiences. They've dropped away. So in the fourth jhana, uh, you know, you can't have a knee ache, right? <laughs> or you can't, you're, you're right? So none of that's happening. And um, it really emphasizes the equanimity and a purity of mindfulness. And I think if someone would read the fourth jhana simile, it just captures the essence so beautifully. Yes, pl- did you, you were going to read? Yes, please. Oh yeah, maybe we get the get the mic back. Oh oh oh, good. Thank you very much. Finally, attaining, finally upon attaining the fourth jhana, he sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pure, bright mind. Just as though a man were sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his body whole body not covered by the white cloth so too a bhikkhu sits pervading this body with a pure bright mind so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pure bright mind thank you thank you this goes back to what uh, what you were saying about the place of awareness in the mind, and it's really and experientially. So it's not about uh, right. It's, it's it's different now. It's still saying you're connected to the body. We're going to have to explore that this afternoon a little because the Sudhimaga says you can't feel your body. You're disconnected from your body in jhana. So we have to well, how do we understand that? Uh, given that here it's actually now the experience of the body here, we're, we're in the suttas. Is, is subtle, but not disconnected. They're given something. So what are they talking about here? So we're going to explore that. Yes? Could um, this pure, bright mind be equivalent to the clear light, what is called, I think it's in the Mahayana, clear light of reality? Um, I, I don't know the answer. and I'd have to... Yeah, okay. I, 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 I don't know exactly what they're referring to with those terms, so I don't know. And um, I, I, I can't answer. Um, yes, please. I'm not sure I can articulate this well, but it's what is this that we're talking about? What is so this? Ta- when, oh, see, so it, become, it becomes more and more subtle, or the mind becomes more and more subtle. 
feelings drop away, that drops away, thoughts drop away. So getting to what is left, and I believe various schools of Buddhism took off on that very subject, because I don't think Buddha nature is a part of this philosophy, is it? Right. Buddha nature was a concept that came more out of the Mahayana. The Mahayana. So, and, so and, we're not here in Buddha nature. Right. So, right. And then we're left with this clear, bright mind. But we're totally in the realm of just con- conditioned reality here. This isn't the unconditioned. This isn't Nibbana without remainder of any of that stuff. This is. These are subtler states of conditioned reality. Okay. So uh, let's just be clear about that. Yeah, I see. Because it sounds like we're getting to some kind of essentialness. Uh, you know what? That's, that's not what this is talking about. Change to original mind, right. pure no, mind. That, to, to, to have that conversation, we want to talk about what does the Theravada understanding, and by the way, in Theravada, what I'm about to say is not just understood in one way. What is the Theravada understood of nirvana, of nibbana, and then would we want to try to, how does that relate to Buddha nature or some kind of, we were talking about some kind of essence or what, is there some fundamental, the absolute fundamental ground of existence or being that, that it all comes back into, you know, all of that stuff. Right. We're, not, we're not into any of that stuff here. We won't be today uh, because that's getting into what in the Theravada we would call the deathless or the unconditioned. And um, we're actually talking about develop what uh, an under, having an understanding to help our practice develop skillful mind states in the service of the liberation through non-clinging. So this is all in the realm of conditioned reality here. Okay. So that we should be sense. very clear. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So, okay. For Jonas. <laughs> now... Uh, just a couple of quick things here. It's, uh, I'll make it super quick, actually. You can look for yourself, but I pointed out at the bottom of page nine, and, and Steve, you said you're going to make some more copies of the notes. Yeah, Do you know how many we need? Because there are uh, at least one, two, three, four, oh, this, so maybe ten copies or something? Okay. Just a few things. I've listed at the bottom here, just FYI, that... Uh, after jhana, just, just so you know, that there are actually three divergent paths in the suttas after jhana. One is, um, and they're just listed, but I'll just name them, and they each have their own goals and practices. They're not, and you don't have to do them all, but it's just they're there in the suttas. One is, they're what are called these higher immaterial or formless attainments called the arupas. And sometimes, the Vasudhimaga, sometimes, will, sometimes people call them formless jhanas. But the suttas don't do that. They just call them the arupas, the formless attainments. So those are there. We won't, we're not going to get into those today. You can also develop uh, the second path, that's the second way you can go, is uh, I mean, you, maybe you could do all these. You don't have to do one or the other, but they're distinct paths. Uh, what are called, I call them here, supernormal powers or higher knowledge is called the opinions. And there's all these amazing, like, powers, you know, that they talk about. You know, you can walk through walls and read people's minds. And it is all kinds of uh, stuff, you know. It'd be like, um, you know, I'm a Star Wars fan, so if you saw the latest Star Wars and when Kylo Ren tries to get the lightsaber through Luke Skywalker, but he can't because he's really just projected his body there and he's really sitting on a mountaintop. That's this kind of stuff. So we got that stuff too. (laughs) 
Oh, uh, top of page 10. And then also the third path is the development of insight, which leads to nibbana, right? Which is the ultimate goal. So the last thing I just want to say here, and I've just said it very briefly, on page 12, uh, it's real simple. It's just that bottom little section. You can look at it more on your own. And what's the difference between jhana in the Vasudhimagga and in the suttas? We're going to explore it more this afternoon when we look in controversies. But basically is, first of all, the four jhanas of the Pali suttas have been renamed rupa jhanas. So that's a shift in terminology, that's all, which means fine material or jhanas of form. So they call them rupa jhanas. And in the suttas, the four arupas, uh, they're still called the arupas also in the Vasudhimagas, uh, but they're grouped with the four rupa jhanas. They're, here they're called arupa, arupas, not arupa jhanas, to, f- to form what they call the eight attainments. You can read, I'm doing this fast, I know. Um, by the way, just as an aside, you will sometimes hear these formless attainments called formless jhanas. Some teachers do that. And I asked Bhikkhu Bodhi and Tan Jeff about this because I, I can't find it in any text anywhere. And they both think it's possible there's some obscure commentary that does it somewhere, but it's not in the Vasudhi Mag and it's not in the suttas to call them. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying so you're not confused. It's fine. You can call them anything you want. And it could be that some modern teachers, for example, like there's a number of teachers, for example, Lee Brasington, for one, he'll call them the formless jhanas. And it could have come from his, his teacher, Ayakima, for example. We don't know. But you'll hear that, and so it's fine. It's, it's terminology that gets used. Um, and just a couple of other things. I'm going to skip a little. This is very important. In the Vasudhimaga jhana, uh, page 12, I'm under number 5 where it says jhana in the Vasudhimaga. I'm just reading this one thing. In the Vasudhimaga's version of jhana, you have lost connection with your body. They are explicit about that. There's no body. You absorb into those nimittas. So if your nimittas just say light, it's just light. No experience of the body at all. It's not that it's thin and it's a body of light or that you're just, the body's left behind. We'll say more about that this afternoon. No awareness of changing experience actually in Vasudhimagajana. That's, I'm, I don't think that's actually tr- totally true. It gets subtle. But that's not what, the, the Vasudhimagajana teachers wouldn't say that and the texts don't see this. But uh, it's, do insights happen in Vasudhimagajana? I think they do, but you know, that's just... So, um, and then real quickly, uh, Vitaka Vichar, we already said, specifically means connecting and sustaining your attention on the meditation object. Vasudhimaga is very clear. Piti, I said, the suttas don't define what it means, actually. The Vasudhimaga does, and it lists five types of piti, and it's very specific. There's showering piti, and um, I don't remember, but it describes how you experience them. So they're, they're giving us more detail, at least in their system. Sukha can be pleasure or happiness. And a kagata is one-pointedness, fixed concentration, not the broader open. Yeah. All right. We made it to lunchtime. Yeah, Gator. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm appreciating your approach because um, 
I find my mind doing this as I'm listening to it, it's really tempting to say, but this is, this is how it is. <laughs> you know, um, that's what my mind wants to do and that's what every teacher does in some way. Um, so it's really good to have this return to an overview and recognize, well, how, how are we defining terms? And then the other piece that, there's two other pieces that you, one is you kind of touched on through people bringing it up is the current influence of Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, particularly on the language of Western Vipassana teachers and how in fact the term definitions are different. So that leads to a, a lack of precision, a lack of, a lack of clarity because awareness is not a term that is used in, in the suttas, actually. So awareness is used a lot by Western Vipassana teachers, but there is not a translation for that in the suttas, in yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People are, you know, bringing different understandings, different skillful means, and hopefully they inform each other in a way that's, that's, that's useful, and then that's good, and, or, or the purists may say not good, you know, so this yeah. is the way it's always been, right? Yeah. Different no, influences come and influence, and things grow and change. It'd be amazing if things didn't change and stayed the same, right? Given this one of the characteristics. So. The other piece that you haven't touched on, which is also very interesting and probably too big for this, but um, is the influence of the Yoga Sutras and that Visuddhimagga is in some way influenced by the Yoga Sutras, which is in fact the practice that the Buddha did before his enlightenment. Yeah, And so that that uh, that uh, some, uh, jhana practice is ancient in the Indian tr tradition, yeah. but separate from what the Buddha was teaching, and yet they are influenced. So the Buddha was trained in uh, jhanas before his enlightenment, and in some way that was wrong concentration. Yeah, but you know, it's, that's, also, that's true, and of course it's a, it's a huge topic. I, I'm not that's, I'm not qualified. To, I've studied a little bit, yeah. but I'm not really qualified to talk about it. I know some people might even say that the Vasudhimaga version is really was more of the yoga kind of jhanas, and and it's, it's a big world. It's not you know so. Yeah, it's just another piece. But let's just look at all this. So what I so let me just say this. We're gonna. I appreciate that. Thank you. Here's what the afternoon's gonna be. So you you know some of you may come come back or whatever. I'll just tell you what the afternoon's gonna be. Um, now that we have this background, I do think we can a little bit slow it down, and, uh, and I hope we'll actually have some time to sit uh, this afternoon. But there's two things. Before the between lunch and the break in the afternoon, I've called it looking at samadhi and important Buddhist lists. We'll use that a phrase framework. What is the understanding of samadhi in the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, in the seven factors of enlightenment? And in the Anapanasati, Mindfulness of Breathing Suttas, those, we're going to use that. There's other lists, too, but we'll look at that. We'll see what's in the text. And then I also want to take some time then to really step back and say, okay, now let's look at the range of ways it gets taught in practice so that we can start to understand and be informed about why we might do it one way or another way and everything. Because it's not just one way, as, as many of you know, that it's taught, right? It's, so we're going to really kind of look more from a practice and then finally in the day, we will look also at um, some of the controversies that are out there. And the controversies include such things as, do you need concentration or not? In, uh, you know, is mindfulness the same as insight? 
Is that the same, you know, how does that fit in with samadhi? How can, what are the different ways to understand to fit together in practice? What really is jhana? Uh, is, you know, what, what is the real controversy? Because there are jhana wars out there, believe it or not. I mean, I, you know, I don't think we need to have them personally. It's like, you know, it's all good. But so what, what's the real essence of these between the Vasudhimaga proponents in its various forms and the Sutta proponents in its various forms? So we really can look at the controversies. Is jhana considered necessary for enlightenment or not? Are insight and, and samadhi practice two separate paths? Is there an understanding that they can be one path together? It turns out there is. So, so we're going to look at all of that in the afternoon.